you want to take your Bible and uh, open and find John chapter 11. Today we're going to round out our look at John 11, chapter 11, which we started last week with the story of, we looked at most of the passage, the chapter last week with the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. But our focal passage today will um, begin near the end of chapter 11 and also uh, dip into chapter 12 right up until Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which we'll think about next week. So specifically, our passage today is John eleven forty five through 12, 11. And just to situate us, uh, in this passage, we'll be told that we come to the final Passover of Jesus' public ministry. I mentioned before that in John's gospel, there are three different Passovers um, during his public ministry, which helps us to know that Jesus' public ministry lasted roughly three years. Uh, the, we came across the first in chapter 2, right around the time that Jesus turned the water into wine. That was his first sign. Then the second one in chapter 6, around the time that Jesus fed the 5,000 with a few loaves and fish and walked on water. And now in this chapter we come to the third, which signals that with this we are, well, the last week of Jesus' earthly life is sort of at hand. And with that, the, the tension between the Jewish religious rulers and Jesus are, uh, is sort of reaching its peak. The whole, just narratively speaking, in the storyline of this gospel, the whole point of this passage is, from John's perspective, is to highlight the crescendo of hostility, right, between Jesus and the rulers uh, so that that's going to issue immediately in the following chapters to Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. You say, well, we're, there's a lot more gospel left in this book. I mean, we're just in chapter 11, and there's 21 chapters. We're like halfway. Yeah, but what you, what you need to realize is that when you get to this point in John, it comes to a screeching halt. I mean, so the last half of the gospel of John covers one week of Jesus' earthly life. We've, the first half covers two, almost three years, and the last half of it covers one week. So what's going to issue right out of this is Jesus, uh, basically his arrest and crucifixion. So the main point of this passage we're about to read is highlighting that tension so that when Jesus is arrested and eventually crucified, that doesn't just hit you out of the blue. You, go, you, you almost see it coming. But I don't think that's the only thing that we're, we can take away from our passage this morning. I, nor am I convinced that that's the only thing that John wants us to see. Otherwise, he would have said, and tension was really high. I mean, he could have said that. He says more than that. So I think that um, John has more to tell us here than just tension was really high. I've, I've said it earlier in this study through John that in addition to simply telling the story, John has really two big uh, sort of aims or, uh, yeah, aims at what he's trying to get at in writing this gospel, not just to inform you. But we've said many times his main aim is that through reading this, you might believe. We've, we've said, made reference many times to that purpose statement at the end of the gospel in John 20. Jesus did many other things than what we have written down here. In fact, if, if we wrote down everything he did, I'm not sure all the books in the world could contain all that he's 
done and said. But these things are written, he says in John 20, verses 30 and 31, these things are written so that you might believe and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's his main goal. Why am I writing this? So that you might believe. Why am I writing any of this? So that you might believe. But he has another goal as well that peeps up from time to time in, in uh, more than one place as he's writing. It's not just that uh, he's giving you reasons to believe. The other thing he gets at is also highlighting the reasons why many don't believe. Why? Um, we've seen him do that already in the gospel. He shows what, it, what keeps, I mean, a lot of people believe, and I want you to believe. A lot of people don't. And what keeps people, many people, from coming to Jesus? Why some in this gospel don't see their need for salvation in him? And really, that aim is sort of a, a subset of the overall aim. Like, I think by showing the reasons why many don't believe and highlighting the reasons why some don't believe, he's hoping that maybe if we become aware of those things, we see those things in our own hearts, we see what is, I see what is keeping me from coming to Jesus, then I might repent of those things and come to believe. Right? I think... I think that's what we're going to see going on here. I think John goes out of his way uh, in describing the tension that's building and crescendoing here, uh, not just describe that tension, but also showing why these refuse to see Jesus for who he is. Why did they refuse to repent, repent and believe? Why did they grow so hostile to him? Why? And... Uh, I think the reasons that he points out here in these opponents are not reasons that are peculiar to them, that they are reasons that creep up in all of our hearts that we need to be aware of if we're honest with ourselves. So not only is it a warning to unbelievers, I think it's also a helpful mirror to believers to hold up for our sanctification. Okay, that being said, let's read our passage together, uh, and I'll try to show you what I believe John is trying to show us here. So we're in John 11. We'll begin in verse 45 and read through chapter 12, verse 11. Follow along with me as I read aloud. Verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did. Now, let's just situate ourselves. What he did was raise Lazarus from the dead. Uh, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, that would be the Sanhedrin, and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say, John says parenthetically, he did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, 
they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them go so that they might arrest him. Chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. I love how just flippantly it says that. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word, and we humbly... Uh, come to you and ask that as we come to this word, this living and active word, sharper than any two-edged sword that just pierces right to our very thoughts and intentions, uh, would you give us eyes to see the truth? Would you give us minds to understand it? Would you please give us hearts to embrace and love it? And would you give us wills to obey it? Give us all ears to hear, I pray. Give me the help that I need to teach and teach clearly. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, maybe as we read this passage, you could kind of see for yourself what I was, what I was trying to, to get at earlier. Like I said, I think as you move through this passage and through the narrative, you can see how John almost overtly in each little episode sort of sticks in statements here and there that points out why some weren't believing and why some were so hostile to the gospel. What kept them from faith? And so what I want us to do for just a few minutes is walk back through this passage and, like I said, see these enemies to faith in Christ. And I think there's two of them that John at least very strongly alludes to here when not outright saying it. Not only what they are, but also why they are so strong in our hearts. And then we'll come back around at the end uh, to show how God's sovereign saving purposes are still highlighted, that no matter the resistance he faces from us or anybody else, his purposes are still accomplished. So if you're taking notes, here specifically are the points that we're going to see, right? Uh, the first is two enemies to faith. Two, not one, but two. Two enemies to faith in Christ. I think we're going to see this in what John says about the Sanhedrin and their opposition to Christ and also Judas and his opposition to Christ. 
two enemies to faith. That's the first point. The second will be two strengths. Not one, but two. Two strengths of those enemies. Why are the two particular enemies to faith that John highlights in in Sanhedrin and in Judas, why are they so strong? Not just in them, but in my own heart. And the third and final point will be the saving sovereignty of God. That should remind us that having seen the danger of these enemies of faith in our hearts, also the futility of it. So God will still accomplish his holy will. All right, so let's dive into the text and and think first about the two enemies to faith that John highlights in our passage. We're going to see them throughout the passage, beginning with the description of the Sanhedrin, later in Judas. So let's go back to the beginning. At the beginning of our passage, it tells us, what happened in the immediate aftermath of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead? Um, what happened? Well, it says in verse 45, many believed. That's not surprising. It seems to me that it would be sort of hard to explain away if you were there and literally saw it with your own eyes. That guy was dead, and he was dead the day before I got here, and the day before that, and the day before that. He's been dead for a few days, and now he's alive again. It would be hard to explain that away. Not surprising that many would believe. We'll see sin can make us do a lot of things contrary to reason and common sense. But then verse 45, many believe. Verse 46 tells us another response to that. It tells us that others who were there, instead of believing, verse 46, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them. Now before we get to what the the enemies to faith actually are, I want to propose to you ahead of time that... Um, what we're going to see in these that, that, that went and told the Pharisees um, is, is, is it's the same impulse in them that we're going to see in the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin themselves. And what I'm getting at is this. What motive, what motive would these people have had when they saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, for crying out loud, what motive would they have for going to tell the Pharisees what they saw? Um, I suppose that some of them could have done that just in their amazement. I mean, in, in, in a sense that imagine that you, on a normal day, you witnessed something that you thought was miraculous. Imagine that you witnessed something that you almost could not believe your eyes, and you thought, this was a miracle of God. Is there not some part of you that might want to go tell your pastor what you saw, right? And, and hear his perspective on the whole thing. So it could be that uh, they were just going to their pastors of the day, to the Pharisees, and say, we saw Jesus do this. What's your reaction to that? I suppose that's a possibility. I believe more probable is that they went and told the Pharisees to save their own skin, Right? They did not want to be caught in the position of having to admit that they knew this happened and didn't say anything about it to them, right, to save their own skin. If you look down at verses 56 and 57, where we were told that when the Passover was getting close, the people were sort of on the lookout for Jesus in verse 56. What do you think? Do you think he's not going to come at all? They're looking for him. Why are they looking for him? Are they looking for him just because... He's kind of amazing. He does amazing things. I want to see if he's going to do another miracle or say something amazing like I'm the light of the world, you know, or something like that. 
Why are they looking for him? Is it that? No. In verse 57, it says why they were looking for him because verse 57 says the rulers had given orders to the people to let them know if they saw Jesus so that they could arrest him. So there's no doubt that the people were afraid of the Pharisees in a sense and the authority that they had over them. I mean, if they had the power to arrest Jesus, they had the power to arrest them. Uh, and make their lives as miserable as they wanted to make Jesus. So those who had told the Pharisees in verse 46, I think they were wanting to stay in the good graces of the Pharisees. That was their primary concern. And it won't, that, that right there won't be far off from what we see is the greatest concern of the Pharisees and the other rulers here in, in this passage. But let's turn our attention to them. What do the Pharisees do with this information that they just received about Lazarus. What do they do when they hear about what Jesus had done with Lazarus and Bethany? Look at verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. That, that is the Sanhedrin, which was, the Sanhedrin was the collective religious governing body of the people. It was the Pharisees together with the Sadducees, basically the conservatives and the liberals together, as well as the chief priests. There were 70, some, some, it could be 70 or 71 in all, right? And, and this is the same body, by the way, that one week later is going to put Jesus on trial and send him to Pilate. He gathers, they gather that body, and they re, the Pharisees relay to all of them all the things that Jesus had done and that something needed to be done about him. Why? What was their concern? Look at what they say in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They were afraid on two fronts. That's at least my reading of this. One, first one is, if they're afraid that if Jesus turns out to be a political figure kind of Messiah, like we're afraid he might be, then he might try to overthrow Roman rule over us, and they might get mad about that and come down hard on us, and we'll lose our place. Okay? That's one. That won't be good for us. I think that's possible. I think that's one thing. I'm not sure that's the whole of it. Considering, why do I think that's not the whole of it? Because considering that they had just recognized the signs that he had done, did they not? They said, um, right, they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. They know, they know the signs. They knew the signs that he had done. They knew the words that he had spoken were not words of political overthrow. If he said anything about his kingdom, it's my kingdom is not of this world. Right? And he's talking about the forgiveness of sins. That's what he's talking about. I believe they knew that was his message, not one of political overthrow. I believe they were simply afraid of diminishing influence. They were afraid of diminishing prestige, diminishing privilege, diminishing reputation, diminishing control, diminishing authority. I think that's what they were afraid of. And that gives you insight into the first enemy of faith that John is highlighting here. If you want a single word for it, maybe power or something like that. They enjoyed, these, these political rulers, Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests, high priests, 
they enjoyed the power and the authority that they possessed over the people. They, they tell the people, look for Jesus and come tell me if you see him. And guess what? People do it. Right? They enjoyed the prestige and the privilege that came with their position. Let me just, you don't have to turn here, but listen to what Jesus, for example, himself said about the Pharisees in Matthew 23. In, in Matthew 23, verses 1 to 6, he's ascribing woe to the Pharisees. And he says, then Jesus said to the, the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you, but do not the works that they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, lay them on people's shoulders. And they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make, they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. That's what they, that's what they loved. They loved the police places of honor, the best seats, the greetings at the markets places. And they were afraid, yes, that Jesus might cause them trouble with the Roman government, but I think that was almost a smokescreen. I think that part of the reason that that bothered them, that he was going to cost them the privilege and the power that they enjoyed. It would have, in their minds, cost them their reputation among the people. And it kept them from Jesus. In fact, fear of losing their place didn't just keep them from believing. It translated into hostility. Verse 53 says, they made plans. They made plans to put Jesus to death. And I'll propose that this enemy keeps people from Jesus in more than one way. Um, it doesn't just keep people from coming to Jesus at all. It keeps a lot of people from coming to Jesus at all. They see that, you know, Jesus said, count the cost of following me. And people don't want to give up the status or something that they have built for themselves. And they don't want to give that up, and so they don't follow Jesus. It, it, yeah, this keeps a lot of people from coming to Jesus at all. Um, but it also keeps, I believe, believers from walking in close fellowship with Jesus uh, in a couple of ways. One, you grow cold in your love for Christ because almost imperceptibly, without you even noticing that it's happening, you love your life and the reputation and the network and the everything that you've built for yourself at school, at work, more than faithfulness to Christ. And it keeps you from close faithfulness to Jesus. But also, you might claim to love Christ. That's just between you and God, but there's a second way. You might claim to love Christ, but while enjoying that, that reputation and privilege that you have enjoyed for yourself, if you refuse, if you don't use your influence, if you don't use your reputation for the good of those around you who are less fortunate. And, and instead of thinking others more significant from yourselves, it's, that's keeping you from faithfulness to Jesus despite your professed love for him. It's hard to say that you love Christ if you don't love your neighbor. And love of your reputation, 
love of your privilege, love of your popularity can keep you from both. We'll come back to the Sanhedrin again in just a bit, but when we come to the next scene in, in the story, John clues us in to another enemy to, the, to faith, and it zeroes in on Judas. Uh, as chapter 12 begins, John tells us that we're six days before Passover and, and uh, back at Bethany where uh, you're with Lazarus and his family, his sisters. And Jesus and his disciples were eating with them, and while, while they were there, Lazarus' sister Mary poured expensive perfume on Jesus' feet and wiped it with her hair. Um, Mary would not have intended this, but Jesus' comment in verse 7 of chapter 12 indicates that Jesus saw what Mary did as sort of symbolically preparing him for burial. Um, he saw his coming death in six days' time. But where does this story go? Mary does that remarkable act of kindness. Where does the story go? It turns to Judas. Now, clearly, John is the, per the reason, one reason that John brings up Judas here is to insert him in the story because he's about to be a major figure, right? You don't hear a lot about Judas earlier in, in the Gospels, but here he is, and um, he's preparing you for what's coming to give you an idea about the kind of guy that Judas was. But on, on what does this exchange with Judas turn? It turns on his complaint that Mary was wasting this expensive perfume or ointment and feigning concern that it would have been better spent by selling it, getting a lot of money for it, and giving all that money to the poor. Now, think about that. Aside from how insulting that would have been to Jesus, right? It's not that she just threw it in the trash can. She gave it as an offering to Jesus, and he was like, she shouldn't have done that. She shouldn't, Jesus, she should have given it to the poor, not to you, right? Okay, that's not surprising, though, in light of what it just reveals. But John makes sure to tell us the deeper reason why Judas said this. It was because he preferred to sell it and give the money to the poor after he had skimmed off the top a little bit for himself. He was a thief. Judas loved money. He loved money more than Jesus. Just a few days after this, he would betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and here he loved money more than the poor and more than Jesus. If the Sanhedrin loved their status and their position and their privilege, Judas loved money, and it kept him from Jesus, and it keeps a lot of people from Jesus. Just listen to a series of things that, that Paul says, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. For the love of money is is a root of all kinds of evils. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Money and what it can buy is an illusion of what is truly life, right? G Faithfulness to Christ is truly life. In the Gospels, by the way, in the, in the four Gospels, Jesus said more about money than heaven and hell combined. It is the easiest idol in our lives to worship and serve. It's the easiest one. It's, it's easy to love the comfort it can buy. 
it's, it's easy to love um, the, 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 the popularity for yourself it, it can contribute to. It's easy to love the pleasure it can bring. It's easy to love the security that it seemingly affords. It was true of Judas. It was true of Paul's friend Demas, who in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I think verse 10, Paul says about his friend Demas, who had gone on missionary journeys with him even, uh, that Demas had deserted him. Why? Because he was in love with this present world. It's easy to be true of, of uh, your heart and mine. And I would say it probably is true of your heart and is true of mine. We need to actually think hard about the ways in which it shows up. Maybe in ways that we haven't recognized yet. So we've seen two enemies to the faith in these, in these scenes here. For some, it was their love of their position and their power and their privilege. For Judas, it was his love of money. What I want to point out for just a few minutes now is the strength of those enemies. The strength of why are those two things so dangerous in our hearts? We, we all are acquainted with both of them. Why is it so strong in our hearts? Looking back at the text, I want to point out two strengths that both of them possess. Um, those enemies that we saw in the, in the Sanhedrin and in Judas, which, to repeat, are no less present and dangerous in our own hearts. And in particular, those two strengths that each of those powers possess, those enemies possess, are blinding power and corrupting power. Blinding power and corrupting power. Let me just say a quick word about each of those. John seems to go out of his way not just to show what kept the Sanhedrin and what kept Judas from faith in Christ, but how strong those barriers were, giving indications in the text. So, for example, notice how John hints at the blinding power of these enemies and barriers to, to the faith. As for the Sanhedrin, let's go back to them. It's kind of remarkable what they say. In verse 47, again, here is the, again is the question that the Pharisees pose to the rest of the group. What are we to do for this man performs many signs? They don't doubt the signs. They did not argue with them or believe that they were made up or exaggerated stories. They presented it as fact. This man performs many signs. Full stop. I'd say. He turned water into wine. He healed the lame. He gave sight to the blind. He fed the hungry miraculously. Walked on water as if on land. Raised the dead to life, just to name a few. They didn't doubt any of these. He performs many signs, period. How in the world can you be so convinced that a man does those things and not believe what he says? You don't see what you don't want to see. Even when the facts are right in front of you, you don't see what you don't want to see. But what about Judas? He could certainly do one better than the Sanhedrin. Sure, they were very aware of the signs that, uh, that Jesus did. Judas was too because he was there. He didn't just hear about them. He saw them. Right? He lived and walked with Jesus for three years. How do you do that and not believe? He was spiritually blind. And his love for money blinded him to what he saw with his own eyes. 
Sin is so deceiving. It's why we have so many blind spots. It's why pride is so easy and humility is so hard. Sometimes we have to be convinced that it's sin at all what I do in my own life, that it's no different than what I see and I find fault in with others. It's so easy to be a hypocrite. Their love of power and money blinded them to the truth that was right in front of them. But we don't just see the blinding power of it. We also see the corrupting power of it. How so? It didn't, these, these sins in them did not leave them where they were. Um, it brought them from bad to worse. So in the case of the Sanhedrin, their unbelief and hatred of Jesus, motivated by self-preservation, caused them further to add to that plotting to kill him. Right? And not only just plotting to kill Jesus, bad to worse, we're told at the end of the passage they plotted also now to kill Lazarus. Did you catch that the first time we read it? At the very end of the passage in verses 9 through 11 in chapter 12, uh, they made plans to kill Lazarus too, which at this point I'm sure really scared him. Because his testimony was bringing many to faith in Jesus. So not only did, going back to the Sanhedrin, not only did their pride and position and privilege blind them and callous them against Jesus, it corrupted them to murder, not just plotting to murder Jesus, but now Lazarus as well. And in the case of Judas, here Jesus mildly rebukes him for his comment about the poor. And while you don't see in this passage the immediate reaction of Judas to that, within six days of this, of this event, within six days, he betrayed Jesus to be murdered. I mean, it's one thing to complain because you missed out on a chance to make money. It's another to murder for it. So sin doesn't just blind us. It corrupts us. The, the, the cliche I've heard all my life is apt. Sin will take you farther than you want to go keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. I mean, cliches are cliches for a reason. They're true. We see it here and it's no different from us. I, I, but I don't want our... We've seen, we've seen the, 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 the enemies, the strength of those enemies. I don't want to spend our whole time together, though, in this passage to be dominated by the reality and power of sin in our lives. We need to acknowledge it very up front. We need to acknowledge those things that keep us from faith and faithfulness to Jesus. But I want us to see quickly also, as we come to a close, the saving sovereignty of God, despite all the opposition. And to see this, I just want to zero in quickly on chapter 11, verses 49 to 53. After the Pharisees called the Sanhedrin together, and asked what they ought to do, admitting that Jesus did many signs, the high priest stood up. Caiaphas. <laughs> Caiaphas, I would have, he, he seems like a character because basically in verse 49, Caiaphas' first words to them are basically, y'all are really dumb. And then he proceeds to give his advice. He says in verse 50, 
it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should die. What he meant was this. We can kill Jesus, and in so doing, we get rid of the problem, and the whole nation will, the Romans will leave us alone. But John says there was more going on here that Caiaphas didn't even realize. John says that while Caiaphas meant one thing by what he said, God actually caused him to say those words for a prophetic purpose. And he spoke more than he realized. John explains that Caiaphas was admitting and prophesying that Jesus' death would be substitutionary for the people. What people? He says at the end of verse 51 and verse 52, Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God that are scattered abroad. John is saying that Caiaphas, the high priest, Caiaphas was by the will of God, unbeknownst to him, prophesying that Jesus' death would not be would not be a substitute for all the Jews to spare them from the wrath of the Romans. Jesus' death would be a substitute for all his people to spare them from the wrath of God. They thought they were killing Jesus for their purposes, but actually they were simply going to fulfill God's purposes for them. And hence there's great irony in verse 53, so from that day on they made plans to put him to death. And in so doing, they would not be accomplishing, accomplishing their goals, but God's. Here's, here's, uh, here's how it, that event is described in, Acts, in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. And this isn't unrelated to all that I've been saying up to this point about enemies to faith and strength of those enemies. Here's how it's connected. The same God who sovereignly accomplished His saving will despite their opposition to Him can sovereignly accomplish His will despite our wayward and often hard hearts him. My hard heart is no more an obstacle to the saving purposes of God than the obstinance of the Sanhedrin was to the saving purposes of God. His, he sovereignly redeems though we sinfully rebel. And even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul would later say, he makes us alive in Christ. By grace we are saved. In about, for the last uh, next five minutes or so, we have uh, time to pray together in groups of two or three. Here's how we might pray before I close this out. Um, pray in, in, in your groups. Pray and, and just, I mean, you, just be as honest as you want to be in your prayer. Pray and ask God's forgiveness for where either one of these enemies you see creeping up in your own life, um, where they exist in your own life, like love of, of self-image and privilege and things more than God or money and what it can buy, comfort. Pray and ask His forgiveness for those things. Pray for His grace to repent of those things. And just thank Him for His sovereign power to save you. We'll pray for a few minutes, then I'll close this out.